What makes for a good life? Our guest today says the roadmap is right in front of us. Ralph Hawkins, Professor of Religion and Director of the Program in Religion at Everett University in Virginia, is the author of a new book, Ancient Wisdom for the Good Life. And he's joining the conversation and help us live the good life today. Good morning, Ralph. Good morning, Deb and Seth. Great to be with you. All right, so jumping right in, one of the things that that just stands out is in the book, uh, Anyone Can Grasp God's Wisdom. That's a big statement, because there's a lot of wisdom there. Can you unpack that for me? Sure, Seth. Thank you. That's certainly a great question. Well, the, what I mean by that is that the, the quest for the good life was a really popular topic in the ancient world among you know, all kinds of thinkers in the ancient world. You think about the classical period in Greek society, people like Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, they were all on a quest for the good life, and they talk a lot about it in philosophy, but they believed it was out of reach for common people, and Mm. it could only be attained by an elite class of philosophers. But uh, in the Bible, the... um, the ancient Israelite sages who wrote the wisdom literature, they taught that wisdom is for everybody. And um, you think, for example, about Proverbs 8, they they um, have this image of Lady Wisdom, who's sort of a personification of wisdom, and she stands at the crossroads and calls out to everybody who passes by and calls on them to come and learn from her. And in verses 4 and 5, she says, To you, O people, I call. And my cry is to all who live, O simple ones, learn prudence, acquire intelligence, all you who lack it. So she stands out at the crossroads and just calls on everybody to come in. Um, And that makes the Bible's wisdom literature unique, that um, it's designed to be for everybody, not Mm -hmm. just for an elite class of philosophers. Mm. Well, that's a good news Mm -hmm. for us. So one thing the wisdom literature talks about a lot is the fear of the Lord. And so do you, what do you think about the fear of the Lord in our culture today? Do we have a healthy fear of the Lord? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. I, I, I think, um, you know, it's, talking about the fear of the Lord is an interesting concept, and I, I think there's kind of a negative um, view of the fear of the Lord, for one thing. Um, when people hear that expression, the fear of the Lord, you know, the way we use that word fear today, it's it's usually connected with the human instinct to run away or mm. to defend yourself or yes, to retaliate. Yeah. Uh, so we think of fear a, as a negative thing, but um, the English word fear is a good translation of the Hebrew word, but it, those negative connotations don't really capture the sense of what the biblical writers we're trying to convey, and um, there are some contemporary translations that have, that have proposed alternative translations like respect instead of fear, or or they'll translate it as reverence. Mm. I, th- I think a good translation of the the expression "fear of the Lord" would be reverential awe of the mm. Lord. Oh, that's good. I, I th- yeah. I think that really expresses more the positive sense of, of the response that the Lord is looking for from us as reverential awe. And um, 
in the wisdom literature, the ancient Israel sages, the, the people who wrote the wisdom literature, they taught that reverential awe of the Lord is the found the, it's the very foundation of wisdom. They say that in Proverbs one seven. And if we have reverential awe of the Lord, we, we revere Him and we're in awe of Him. Well, we're going to want to embrace wisdom. We're going to want to live according mm. to God's ways. And this idea is so baked into the wisdom literature as a whole. Um, the book of Proverbs starts by saying the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That same expression occurs in the middle of the book, and it appears at the end of the book. And then it's scattered throughout the book more than 13 times. So the, so the, the sages really believe that if we discovered a reverential awe for the Lord that would compel us to seek after him and want to walk in his ways. So as a, a bit of a follow-up, you also include a, a chapter that really focuses on personal responsibility, one of my favorite subjects ever. Uh, and how do you see that relating to wisdom? Um, well, that's, that is a really great question um if you th- I, I love that topic too and if, if you think about the word uh responsibility i really struggled with what to title that chapter i think in the book it's called uh, cause and effect right um, but after the book was published i kind of wish i'd titled it responsibility <laughs> uh, because i think that word really captures um, um what I, I what i want to talk about in that chapter and if you think about that word responsibility You'll see that you really got two words in there. It's a compound word. So response and ability. And and the word responsibility really has to do with our ability to respond. It's saying that we are able to respond. We're able to to be responsible in our lives. Mm -hmm. And um, that word responsibility captures uh, oftentimes a, a nuance that we have an obligation to respond um, so that word responsibility is really loaded. We're able to respond in our lives. We're able to be responsive, uh, but we also have an obligation to be responsible people. Uh, over the last several decades, there have been a number of social observers who have argued that there's been a decline in our culture mm. uh, in, in terms of our sense of personal and social responsibility. Uh, there was a book published back in 1992 by a guy named Charles Sykes, and, and the title of his book was A Nation of Victims, The Decay of American Character. And, and he argued that we in our society have kind of devolved um, to where we have less sense of responsibility and more of a sense of entitlement or a victim mentality, um, regardless of people's political persuasion. Uh, we had a a recent presidential candidate, he dropped out of the race recently, but Vivek Ramaswamy, he played off of Charles Sykes' 192 title, and he wrote um, a campaign book called Nation of Victims, in which he essentially made the same argument that we've become a, a nation of victims, we've lost our sense of responsibility, and we need to recapture it. Um, and I think both of those authors are right on. Um, one of my favorite writers is a, um, uh, a sociologist named um, Dennis Waitley. It, he uh, wrote a number of phenomenal books. Back in 
the 90s, the late 90s, he wrote a book called Empires of the Mind. And in that book, he had a chapter on responsibility. And he said that um, he, one of the things he, um, I, I don't know that he ever did this, but he thought about creating a foundation with a pool of money in it and a contest for school kids to write an essay. And the essay would be focused on the topic of responsibility with the idea that if if you were heading into uh, New York and, and you were on a boat heading into the harbor, you would see the Statue of Liberty. Mm-hmm. But if we were to have next to the Statue of Liberty a statue of responsibility, mm-hmm. what would that look like? <laughs> And his essay contest would challenge young people to think about that. But, you know, people have – we're a nation of immigrants, and they come here for liberty. But what Whiteley was trying to convey with that essay contest was was people who come here also need to understand that with liberty comes responsibility. Um, and ancient Israel sages understood that, and they have a lot to say about cultivating responsibility in our personal lives. Uh, recapturing a sense of responsibility and what that means um, mm. in the wisdom literature. Mm. So let's jump into the wisdom li- literature and look at integrity, which is kind of a close cousin, I think, to responsibility. Amen, but amen. I think it doesn't seem like we're seeing much integrity in the public square anymore. Yeah, well, I, I agree. Um, And recovering integrity really starts with renewing our belief that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Again, right when you open up the book of Proverbs, ancient Israel's sages say that in in chapter 1, verse 7, that the reverential awe of the Lord, that's the very beginning of wisdom. So, uh, And and then if we're going to recapture a sense of integrity in our society, we've got to start there with recapturing a reverential awe for the Lord because that's going to compel us to want to follow his ways. Uh, The second thing, when we look at how ancient Israel sages talked about the fear of the Lord, we see that they believed there was a very close relationship between the fear of the Lord and love and reverence for God's law or his Torah, his instruction. In one of the wisdom Psalms, for example, the psalmist invites children to come to him so that he can teach them the fear of the Lord. And then immediately he proceeds to teach them about the importance of God's law. That's in Psalm 34, verses 11 through 22. In another example, at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, the author sums up his quest for wisdom by concluding that the whole duty of man is to fear God and to keep his commandments. So a fear of God or a reverential awe of God leads us right in to um, uh, a lifestyle focused on obedience to the Lord's commandments, conformity to the Lord's ways. And this is a main emphasis in in the Pentateuch itself, that love and reverential awe of the Lord leads us to follow his ways. You think of Moses' instructions in Deuteronomy 10, He says, what does the Lord really want from you, O Israel? Well, here's the answer. Only to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. So a reverential awe for God leads to a lifestyle of obedience and conformity to his ways. 
So these are the things I think that are going to help us to recapture integrity in our societies, rediscovering a reverential awe of the Lord. And um, once we have that kind of fear of the Lord, that's going to lead us into a lifestyle that seeks to cultivate um, uh, a, a following of his ways. I, I know you have limited time to be with us, but I want to ask you a follow-up question to that. As humans, are we hardwired for faith, or are we more a default setting of, no, 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 I got it, I'll do it myself? <laughs> That's really a great question. I, I think we absolutely are hardwired for faith. Um, one of my favorite writers in um, over the last 20 years has, has been a guy named Dr. Herbert Benson. He was, a, he was actually a cardiologist um, in uh, Massachusetts, but he was the founder of an institute um, at the Massachusetts General Hospital called the Mind Body Medical Institute. And he argued that, I'm, I'm quoting from him here, he said, humans are wired for faith, mm. and there is a special healing generated by people who rely on faith. Uh, that's the yeah. end of the quote. But he explains in his writing that when we're drawn to faith in an hour of need, we literally experience relief psychologically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and even physically. Um, if you have listeners who are interested in the biology, uh, they might want to read his book. Uh, he, he published this book in 1996. It's called Timeless Healing, The Power and Bi- Biology of Belief. But if they want to read about how ancient Israel's sages thought about this um, I have a chapter on um, healing in the book that explores what they had to say about it. This is this is fascinating. What a great discussion. We're talking with Ralph K. Hawkins. The book is Ancient Wisdom for the Good Life. Mm. And so, uh, Ralph, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us this morning and help us look into what it takes to live the good life. Thank you so much, Deb and Seth, and I wish you every blessing in the good life.